Hello, and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We're here in June, early June, with a sort of special episode. We are taking a break from our regularly scheduled Penguin Review Classics, uh, Little Black Classics book reviews. Uh, We decided to take this week off, so to speak, from that to just make a programming change in response to the recent rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that have been going on in the United States. Um, All of the people who do this podcast live in the United States um, in various cities around the country. So we felt pretty strongly that it would be appropriate to lend our very small slice of expertise and do our small part to contribute to that discussion and the conversations around police brutality and police reform now. That's conversations kind of transitioning to that that direction and police funding issues, policy issues. Um, and yeah, again, just addressing this sort of Black Lives Matter movement that is happening amid a pandemic. Let's not undersell that either. It's a really quite a fraught time right now in the country. Um, and so, yeah, we, we felt it appropriate to basically do a book club episode on a work that we agreed on. Um, we chose a book by... Um, Tanahasi Coates, and it is called Between the World and Me. It's pretty recent, very contemporary. I think it was published in 2016. Did you check the date, Amanda? Uh, I did not. Yeah, me, well, you and me both. See, this is the level of professionalism. We're, we're bringing our normal <laughs> level here of research. I think it was it, 2016. Yeah, it was post um, um, the Ferguson stuff. So Okay. Yeah. Okay, so it was after those uh, demonstrations, there was also, um, there were also protests back then in response to that, though, to a much, much less, uh, lesser extent than there have been in the past week or two weeks, really. 2015. 2015. Okay, excellent. I knew it was pretty recent, but wasn't sure how recent. Um, Coates is an author I'm definitely familiar with, primarily from his work at The Atlantic. Uh, and then I actually have read this book before near its publication, but it was more of a skim. I definitely did not very closely read and annotate, you know, many times and et cetera. It was more of like a, a quick skim read. He also became pretty well known in terms of being a thinker and a kind of a cultural critic because he wrote out a very lengthy piece for the Atlantic about um, reparations. And he sort of, I think the article was called the case for reparations. He essentially laid that out and put out the kind of a summary of intellectual thought and academic historical thought that uh, led him to make the case for that. Have you heard of him before? Had you encountered his work before? I never had before. Okay. He also did a, um, I mean, cause you know, the, the food's got to get put on the table, people. He also wrote Black Panther for Marvel. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. He did it. I mean, and you know how comics are. Maybe you don't. But I mean, they're, they're constantly reshuffling authors and illustrators and, and color f- folks. And like the, every single job in a comic book line gets changed out all the time. <laughs> so he I mean, there's been many people who have written Black Panther, but he's the most recent one. And mm-hmm. I actually did purchase those. I think my takeaway from it was intriguing moments, but I really don't think any superhero comic book is for me personally. Movies are kind of fun, but yeah, I didn't, I compared to other comics and graphic novels I've enjoyed. It was, I thought it was fine, but not, um, anyway, not anything too remarkable. So at any rate, he's a really well-known writer, very well regarded and respected. This book created some big waves when it was published because of its, I think as we'll get into because of its quality of writing and depth of thought, in addition to some controversies within the text that we can maybe dig into or dive into. Let's start with our fill in the blank. We are going to kind of approach this episode in our normal book club way, we've got our outline here in front of us and we're going to delve into the text um, and deal with it on its merits, I suppose. And I mentioned to this um, to you before the show, Amanda, I suppose okay. we should say as a kind of, I don't know, disclaimer up top, 
Um, I'm not going to speak for Amanda or Ryan. I'm a hundred percent in support of the black lives matter movement. I'm a hundred percent in support of defunding the police and perhaps even dismantling. I've never been much of an anarchist. I, uh, grew myself up as kind of a Marxist in college. So I have my own views and I skew certain ways in my own beliefs, but I would put that out there right now. I'm not going to force Amanda to make any political statements or say anything up top. But (laughs) if you're just curious about the ideological leanings of the podcast you're about to listen to, uh, those are sort of my beliefs. I have no, I was going to say doubts. Maybe that's too strong, but I'm fully in support of the movement of the changes being proposed of the protests that are going on. There's yeah. I 100% support the Black Lives Movement, no doubt about it, yeah. Yeah, and I th- I just thought that'd be nice to address up front, uh, because the other thing I wanted to mention too, and again, we mentioned this, or I mentioned this to you before the show started, we're really not going to do, this is not a current events podcast at all. And again, I don't think our voices really can contribute to that discussion in any meaningful way, unless you want to hear my thoughts about like Hegel and Marx from when I was in college or whatever, nobody does. So that's, we're not going to do that. <laughs> like, what, who cares? Um, go, go read some news and like find trustworthy sources to follow on these things. Anyway, I think what we can contribute, though, is an in-depth discussion of a piece of literature and a piece of really interesting and thought-provoking writing. I think we can help put out ideas into the world about works that people can encounter and engage with and think about deeply. And that's what we're going to do. This is not going to be a current events show. I'm sure current events will come up. You know, maybe we'll talk through some specific events or occurrences in the news. But this is definitely not a, an episode where we just rehash what's been going on in the last two weeks. Again, I just don't think that that's our value in this world, you know, in our tiny corner of the Internet. I just don't think that's what we can do that would contribute. So instead, we're here to dissect and think deeply about this book. Hopefully, Amanda, that sounds good to you. That sounds great. Yeah, I think it does, too. Um, why don't you start <laughs> us off with our fill in the blank today? Sure. So... I said the part of Coates's narrative that felt most foreign to me, and I, I want to say very quickly that actually, Travis, your response to this was my initial <laughs> response. Yeah, I saw yeah. That and I was like, well, of course, because we were both educators. <laughs> I don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Our biases are unavoidable. I guess that's how bias works. Um, so I, yeah, I don't, I don't mind if you take one. it, though. Yeah, no, I, don't, I don't mind if you use it. It's fine. <laughs> no, I, I came up with a second one that I, I thought that uh, could also pertain to the fact that I'm a mom now. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So mine was the part of Coates' narrative that felt most foreign to me was the violence in and outside of the home in his youth, which he kind of like talks about a lot um, mm-hmm. in, in conjunction with the, the, yeah. the body. Right. And the most relatable was his desire for his son to know how much he loves him and how much more he wants for him than he ever had, than Coates ever had. Yeah. I think why, and that's the, the parental aspects I think could be so easily relatable to the, the way he describes parenthood is, I mean, that's the power of the writing is at once both very universal and then extremely alienating to, I'm sure a right. lot of people would not comprehend um, many of the passages that he writes about with his son or in regards to his son. Right. I did want to set up too the blanks that I, I constructed that fill in the blank prompt. And I just thought it would be good to acknowledge both sides. Cause I think where a lot of people are right now, I mean, I, and I guess I should just say white people are right now. I mm-hmm. should have framed it that way. Um, I assume that even like me and, uh, and again, I made my v- views or leanings in the, on this issue clear, but no matter where you're at in the spectrum of believing in reforming things or doing reparations or how you approach the justice of this movement, I, you can become uncomfortable quickly 
no matter where you are on the spectrum, you know, Mm -hmm. whether you're like super on board, like I am, and you're, you know, prepared to take direct action and you have things you've specifically done and you know, you can and do even then you can become uncomfortable and you can question if you have enough, you know, understanding of something, if you've researched enough, if you have the right background to comment on something. And then of course, if you're in a complete opposite direction and you know nothing about this, I still think these two parts of it, right? Whether when you approach a book like this, you want to know what is going to feel very unique. And again, I I put foreign meaning in the kind of negative connotative way, I guess, Mm -hmm. just like I was going to put alien, but that's, I think that strikes too harsh a chord. But I I just think when you encounter something like this, and again, you're a white person, you're going to encounter ideas that seem extremely off-putting and unrelatable. And then of course, Mm -hmm. there's just a core humanity to it that will be immediately relatable. So I think it's, yeah. Anyway, that was the whole premise of the fill in the blanks. What about, um, I guess I should do mine, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Because mine is, I guess, standing in for both of ours. I'll have you maybe comment on it too then. Um, Yeah. yeah, Coming coming at this from a background being, uh, having been an educator for five years and a tutor for many more, I wrote down that the, the most foreign aspect of it to me was how he responded as a young person to schooling and education. Um, I wrote down a page that I'll get back to in a second for that. And I think the most relatable, though, was kind of a half of the same coin, which is how strongly his view, how his view of humanity was really reinforced and built up in college and how mm-hmm. that educational experience did really change his view of, of the world and of people, um, how it allowed his kind of introversion to blossom and how his the study became more self-study and that really benefited him. Um, I think I, I, I don't know if you're, you were this way too. It's funny. They make this joke about teachers, but a ton of teachers who go back into education and make that their profession were also really good students. And that was true for me. I had a ton of success in schooling. I did really well in, in a public school environment with standardized testing and doing papers and being told what to do and yada, yada, follow the lessons, do the worksheets and that always felt good, great to me. The school was like a place I could go and be very successful. And it felt great. Right. And I, so I had a very positive educational experience. You know, I went to mm-hmm. what would be considered na- nationally probably just like fine public schools in a small Wisconsin town. These were not like blowing the, the roof off public school quality, but they were good. They were like solid schools. Anyway, so I always felt very at home there. And Coates immediately does not take to school. Um, I don't know if you felt that way growing up too, though. Yeah, going to school for me was, um, first of all, since my mom is Korean, you know, schooling education is very, very important for her. Mm-hmm, yeah. And so she very much uh, guided me towards being successful in school. So I was punished if I didn't get like, you know, an A on the test, even though I had right, an A in right. the class. So, uh, but I, I found that I did excel in classes and I actually enjoyed most of the subject matter and and it was in junior, my junior year when I was taking AP, um, is it lit or comp? I don't remember. Um, anyway, so when I was taking the AP English course in junior year, that's when I decided that, man, I, I actually kind of really love doing this and right, I right. want to do this like forever. So that's when I decided to become an English teacher. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, when I read how much, he even says that he dislikes the schooling aspect, he blames the schooling aspect even more than the violence within the neighborhood. I was like, wow, that's a really strong statement. And, and my reaction, because as both an educator and a person who enjoyed school, right? 
I was and like, I think whoa. <laughs> it's funny too because of how negatively I too reacted to that quote. Here's the quote from 25. He says, he says, uh, quote, fail to comprehend the streets and you gave up your body now, but fail to comprehend the schools and you gave up your body later. Mm-hmm. I suffered at the hands of both, but I resent the schools more. There was nothing sanctified about the laws of the streets. The laws were amoral and practical. You rolled with a posse to the party as sure as you wore boots in the snow or raised an umbrella in the rain. These were rules aimed at something obvious, the greater danger that haunted every visit to Shake and Bake, every bus ride downtown. But the laws of the schools were aimed at something distant and vague. What did it mean to, as our elders told us, grow up and be somebody? And what precisely did this have to do with an education rendered uh, as rote discipline? Which I think hits on two key ideas that, again, when I read that, I, I kind of not bulked at, but I feel like when I was teaching there were two things he mentioned that I never fully escaped as an educator, but I really tried not to do, which was one, make the teaching all rote, rote education, just memorization, mm-hmm. you know, practicing rote things like no creativity, no fun projects, no interesting work. I tried to avoid that desperately and tried to design projects and things to, so it didn't feel that way. And I bet it did feel that way anyway. Right. I bet even my coolest projects still felt like just bullshit writing assignments to many people. And, you know, that's tough. You have to fight that as an educator. You got to come up with creative solutions as as best you can. And then the other thing there that he mentioned that I, again, kind of like just balk at is the the not goal setting aspect. Like, you know, it, his elders just told him like, go be somebody. I mm-hmm. gave students so much more practical, concrete reasons why they would need to know the things we were doing in terms yeah. of just, and I think you have to have it on many levels, right? As a teacher, you have to be ready to say like, well, today we're doing verbs. Here's a very practical reason. Like, here's how you can mess up and say the wrong verb and look like a fool or look or, you know, or, or look foolish or something. And then give them another bigger view and think like, okay, well, when you're writing college entrance essays, hopefully as you would aspire to, like you don't want to, you know, you don't want to have a bunch of typos that creates, makes your writing look sloppy and thoughtless, yada, yada. And then, you know, you go even further and say, you know, you're going to be making some pitches in via email. You might be doing business presentations one day. Like, I just feel like you have to bombard the students with that kind of thing. And again, maybe that was something I also messed up as a teacher. Maybe I didn't give them enough concrete examples or too many, whatever it may be. But I just hearing both of those things was like, man, they never really laid things like that out. They never tried. I, I had the same reaction to his, his thoughts on the library, which was like the library was this like really amazing space for him. And it's like, man, no, no teachers helped you foster that, though. That was just on right. your own. Like no teachers were guiding you. That's another thing. Again, as a reading teacher, I would always give library time. I mean, a ton of students would waste it, frankly. And that's, you know, whatever. But, you know, I, I also tried to build in that understanding of like, yeah, you should be independent and, you know, self-select things to be intrigued by and to read. And just like hearing that that never happened for him. I don't know. It, it just felt very foreign to me to hear all of that. Yeah, I, I, I tried to remember as as I first got over that first reaction where I was like, whoa, dude, like <laughs> I was like a little offended as an educator. And also I did not have that experience. I yeah. was like, well, but he's he went to school at a time that was before us. So, of course. Yeah. so we yeah. don't know really what it would have been like at that time. Maybe it was more like that um, across, across the United States for all I know. I don't, I'm not quite sure, but right. yeah, as educators for uh, like the way that we educate now, which I guess is like, you know, a reformed way of educating because people have had classes where they had like rote memorization and stuff like that. And then, then the, the complaint is that it's not useful and that it's not effective. And then we have right. the educational reforms. So 
yeah, I, I tried to keep that in perspective, but it was still like, it was, it was a little painful to read that. I know. Yeah. And that's our own passions coming through and that's fine. Like that, I think that's perfectly fine way to react. And I, if anything I can say as an educator, it's that, you know, that there's so many different systems and, and procedures that get swapped out between districts and even from year to year in the same district, it'd be impossible mm-hmm. for us to say what his schooling was like, We, you know, and his reaction is his reaction. It's, it is perfectly true for him. And that's, right. you know, of course, valid. I, I don't know anything about the district he was in, the years. I Again, it's like so unknowable to me. I'd have to do a ton of research to dig it up. But the yeah, just the core experience there is, um, well, to me, was the most off-putting. And then, again, to see it come back around, though, like, I think it's funny. I think a lot of his descriptions yeah. of college felt so universal to me. And he literally deems Howard University, where he attended, he calls it the Mecca in all capitals, like a, right. a, a religious type object or, or location for him of such like utter utmost importance, which is really cool description. I, but so many of the sentences are just like, man, that's just college for everybody. I think like right. you meet people you never met, you learn about things you never learned about. And that's underselling it a bit. He does explain why this specific experience um, for him as a black man was an extremely potent one. And I wouldn't undersell that. Cause I think he, he explains it well, mm-hmm. but again, so many of the other things he talks about, like, being in different social groups and going to parties and seeing these blends of people you never imagined. And it's just like, man, that was college for me too. And my college was like 85% white college. And I You're still right. felt the same way about going to college that he describes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it so it's strange to get that same, it, like on one hand I was, uh, I felt so distant at the beginning. And then when he gets to college, I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is how I felt too. Yeah. It was interesting sides yeah. of the same coin. Yeah, I agree. The his description of Howard as far as his journey to actually like loving education and loving studying on his own, mm-hmm. I I very much appreciated that. I was like, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a little little bomb on my my burn there earlier. So <laughs> Sure. Funny. Yeah, that's well said. That's well said. Um yeah, and I think uh, yeah, and I think those of the topics to react against i think we chose honestly pretty tame ones because there's i think parts that and when i was reading the the sort of criticism or critical responses to this work there were some definitely more potentially inflammatory bits in here that again maybe we'll touch on later i'm going to use that um my fill in the blank then to start off our question segment this is when we kind of start to dive deeper we throw some questions back and forth at each other to probe at the text a little bit more deeply i i have one that then comes to mind um just because of what we just talked about what would you most want him to expand on then? Um, this is a very slim and personal volume, which is why we chose it. We didn't want to tackle because we, we responded pretty quickly. We basically in a week said, let's do something from a from a black American author and highlight some work that the, that community has contributed. And so we didn't have a ton of time to be like, and let's pick a 400 page epic or, you know, let's do Invisible Man or like, I you know, that just wasn't realistic. And this is a slim, it's 150 page volume. It's it's academic in spots, but it's mostly personal narrative. Did you find anything in a way missing or, or was there something that there was a hint of or an idea that was introduced, but you felt required expansion? So there were two things that I would have liked to have read more about. Um, and so one of the things is that he mentioned that black women specifically struggle even more than uh, black mm-hmm. men as far as like having to deal with fear and protecting their their bodies and 
um, in themselves. And I just found that really interesting, but he never actually goes into it. And I know, you know, that it's supposed to be a personal narrative where he's talking about his own struggles right. and his own development. Uh, but he just, he throws that in there, but never really develops that. So that's something that I, I would have liked to have read more about for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's funny now that you say that it just rang, it just hit a thing in my head and it just made an alarm go off. Is not almost every commentary you see nowadays about the struggles in the United States of people of color, especially black people, is that not an addendum to every sentence? And have you ever seen it laid out in a, have you ever seen that explained? Because I feel like every time I see now, you know, we have to improve issues with, and I guess I, it's weird. I don't mean for my tone to sound, I'm just trying to summarize. I don't mean to sound flip or something. I agree with everything that these people are saying. I just, I'm just trying to summarize quickly, I guess anyway. But no, I feel like every time you read the kind of bullet points versions of this, the last one is always, and and this goes doubly for, for wimp, for black women. This is, we know that these issues are more severe. I guess, is it just, is it supposed to be so obvious to everyone that it doesn't require explanation? Because again, it just strikes me as another way that if you took a more moderate person, maybe compared to, or maybe a more closed minded person, when mm-hmm. they see it framed that way, I, their reaction might just be to think like, well, what does that mean? What do you mean? It's right. doubly hard. Like what? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I think I could explain th- why that is the case through like intersectionality of feminist issues and women's rights issues with the development. I, again, I feel like I have a, a handle on it, but do you ever see it that explained? Like, would you be comfortable? Do you think people can comfortably explain that and why it's more challenging? I think that some people could. Um, so I've read a few um, books about uh, what it's like to well, the, the black female mm-hmm. uh, perspective. Right. Yeah, so I've read yeah. some of those books. And so I think that I have a pretty good understanding, but I wanted okay. to see what his, cause I haven't read it from a male's perspective, what it would, what the struggle is for the female. Right. So I was looking kind of forward to that when he, he dropped that in there. I was like, Ooh, gotcha. I wonder what he does think is the real struggle. Um, but yeah, I think that it is something that, people say but they don't actually elaborate on and i think that that's maybe a yeah. failing um that needs to be addressed as well because yeah the, the a lot of the time like all these different movements these progressive movements they're they're not always working together there are factions that break off and are almost at war with each other and of then course you're yeah. like well my cause is more important no my cause is more important and what happens is is that things like that just just fall apart and there's no information about that that people can actually discuss so yeah i I agree that that should be and that's one of the reasons why i was so excited (laughs) initially to read that so yeah and i think yeah i i was gonna go in on i would just tack on to our previous discussion here for me answering this question it would be the the schooling i would love to get his like have him sit down and do a year study of just like what is public education in America and then let me know <laughs> give me your broader thoughts about current state of affairs and I just think anything with schooling I have to assume based on this text the amount he he sort of worships or almost deifies the library in in a right. sense I have to imagine his his answer would be something along the lines of independent study and exploring your passions that kind of thing he might, which maybe I'm on he's board a fan with. of Montessori 
Could be. Yeah, honestly, why not? And I'm on board with it too, though. I've seen it go catastrophically awry in my own experiences. So I, I again, my, my feelings are just so conflicted on, on like that kind of topic um, for like middle school age people specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any other questions? I got a couple others. Did you have one you were curious about? For for answering your current question or going on to No, did you have question? one you wanted to throw out there? Oh, yeah, sure. I've got a, uh, a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were talking about like the library specifically. You mentioned that he refers to it as the Mecca, which I found interesting yeah. because um, he's not religious. He's uh, either agnostic or atheist. He never really tells us which I've, one he, he is. He seems a pr- like a pretty... Um, declarative atheist i think okay just the Um, way he just his kind of i was gonna say light disdain for uh, he does not like religious religion as a pacifier or as a or as a balm or a salve like that much he i think he disdains that and so he seemed atheist to me but anyway i guess he never labeled it so but he does use uh, language that's religious to describe certain things. So he talks about how we deify um, the government and and stuff like that as like our God, democracy as our God. So we deify and then he talks about God, right? So he uses religious language um, throughout and specifically it's it's usually Christian language, although he uses mecca instead for the library which i found interesting um Mm -hmm, but he is not himself religious so my question is how does this religion versus his not actually being religious how does that connect his overall message to his son and and to us as the readers like how does that even tie in with anything it is it is one hurdle that and as i'm as we're doing this episode i think i have to just constantly try and like just shift my point of view to being assuming I would be a, like a white reader where most of these concepts would be a little foreign to me or a little alienating to me. I think it is a bit of mm-hmm. a hurdle to jump. I think to me, the the literary reasons behind it would be some obvious ones, right? It very clearly puts him in, a, in an intellectual history with Malcolm X, who I think he really admires. And it is, if we're talking about like heritage of, of thinking or in terms of heritage of thought, he lines up pretty well with some Malcolm X type of thinking. So I think it, it puts right. him in line with him pretty well, especially since, again, he strikes me as atheist. I don't think he's a, a Muslim. So I don't think that I don't think Mecca would have any deep meaning for him. On page mm-hmm. 40 is where he kind of defines it, though. Um, he says the Mecca is a machine crafted to capture and concentrate the dark energy of all African peoples and inject it directly into the student body. And that's the student body of Howard University, which is an HBCU that he attended. And then he says the history, the location, the alumni combined to create the Mecca, which is the crossroads of the black diaspora. So I, I think in that sense, yeah, I mean, the Malcolm X illusion is just one I pulled, but it is mm-hmm. just literally putting it into an intellectual tradition and sort of aligning it in that way. And I think if you look back now, granted, Martin Luther King Jr. is the, the massive in the U.S. exception to this, but a lot of the more like radical visions for black American culture and, and the history of it and everything kind of were defined by uh, Muslims, Muslim Americans. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, calling it that again, just to me kind of gets it lined up with that, I suppose. I don't think it's an illusion though. Again, if I were just to like leave my body and be like, what if I never learned what the Mecca was in school? Like, or what if I only heard it once in eighth grade world history or whatever? I, I don't, th- I think it would have to be something that would have to be explained, but I think he does there on 40. I think it, if you don't, if you read those couple sentences and you're still like, 
what is this? I, I don't know what else to say. I think that de- yeah. I think his definition is pretty clear. That, that I don't know if you read it the same way. Did you feel I like did, it had yeah. a, another? I don't know. Did did it have more subtlety or a different like literary purpose in your mind? In my mind, I was also thinking um, one of the things that I, I, to build on your idea too, the the connection to Malcolm X and the idea that a lot of the the ideas that he kind of. Uh, agreed with uh for the most part were were the um ideas of like radical change which was mostly Mm -hmm. by the islamic community uh the the american islamic community so in contrast was the peaceful protests which is what uh martin luther king and other other christian mostly uh groups were doing Mm -hmm. at the same time and he kind of uh, even in the schools and stuff he's he talks about how that attitude of like, oh, you cannot react with violence, even though you are being, your body is being degraded and your body is being attacked. That yeah. stoic look, he scorns that uh, in the beginning when he's talking about that. He's like, why would we want that? What is the point of that? So I think that that yeah. the the Christian language versus the the specific reference to um mecca i think that that kind of builds on how he views at the same time the the idea of like uh the things that he agreed with which is like the the more uh radical actions versus the ones that as a child or as a youth he did not agree with which is the the peaceful protests and the the right right turn the other cheek thing when he adopts the pretty aggressive philosophy that dead is dead and it's not honorable, nor is it glorious. Like, I don't think, right. and it, I think that comes from, again, kind of an atheist tradition of you can be a humanist and an atheist. Like, you can you can kind of glorify human life and human creativity and art and passion and all kinds of stuff and still think that, like, there's nothing honorable about dying then. Like, you, it, when it's over, there's nothing special about that. There's nothing that we should celebrate. If you don't believe there's an afterlife, then why would you celebrate the nothingness that is to come like way the now is the beautiful part right now is right. the thing that makes it and and the things that people left behind and and i think that works really well then when we think about when he co-ops that religious language but he does it for an institution of learning and, right. and again for him a representation of the black diaspora and like all of mm-hmm. this culture and history that is lost and sort of is is in america at the fringes and you don't know a lot about especially if you grow up um, just in a public school system that does not prioritize that kind of that knowledge, that history, um, or even kind of directly contradicts it in some spots too. Anyway, I think it, it's very fitting that he would ascribe that language to what he, I think, finds really beautiful and glorious in humanity, which is the act of learning, studying history mm-hmm. and culture, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, no, I think the language works really perfectly in that way. I will say, I mean, I'm never a big fan of just randomly giving proper nouns to certain things. So it, it didn't do a lot for me in terms of, I don't think after the hundredth time he calls it that, it had much potency for me anymore, I guess. It's like right. when I see that on page 140, he's still calling it the mech. I respect it because it's the term that he laid out very clear reasons for using. But right. at that point, I don't think it was like drawing anything out of me, the reader. I was just kind right. of like glazing over it like I would any other term at that point. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. So. I'm going to throw one more question though. Let's try and we'll try and keep this one pretty brief. Um, You picked out the motif of the body and then I picked out the one of the dream. What would your quickest Mm -hmm. explanation of the dream be? This is an idea, like you said, is a motif that shows up just repeatedly. It's one, I think you you and I chose the two probably biggest motifs. How would you explain it in the simplest way to someone who hasn't read this? Maybe, maybe frame it in terms of like a recommendation. What would you say his idea is there? 
so it is not Martin Luther King Jr.'s version of the dream. Uh, right. I can tell no, you that. No. <laughs> but it's nope. more of a, a negative uh, perspective, actually. So um, the dream is um, more for like... Uh, what he views as uh, white America, which he says is actually just a, a construct. It's not an actual thing, right? Race is not a real thing. Um, yeah, but yeah. he says that the dream is, you know, you're a white picket fence and um, what did he say? Sc- uh, Cub scouts and beautiful lawn and block parties and all this stuff. Um it's all the things that you would imagine in uh, 1920s America, the, the um, what is it? Leave it to beaver type homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? a, certain, a certain type of suburbia. Right. And, and so that is the dream that in reality has been built on black backs and black blood and, and just yeah. that. It's it's the dream, which is not the reality of where all of these hopes came from. Yeah. And I think I'm going to respond to your question about what do I think of the, the motif of the body? Mm -hmm. It is definitely, I think in terms of like intellectual, um, a a tossing of the, I was going to say tossing of the torch, a passing of the torch, never toss, (laughs) don't don't throw, (laughs) do not throw your torches unless you're playing a video game or whatever. Just, yeah, don't do it. Pass the torch delicately and gently, please. But no, I think, from what I've seen since this book was published is that language is basically, again, if you're in certain social like Twitter circles or intellectual circles online, you just have to know that when somebody says body with capital B, they mean like the thing Coates established. So uh, I think that is a clear like torch he passed to other thinkers and writers like that, that language and that metaphor has like basically been taken whole cloth. So that's a good one to know. I think you chose like, (laughs) if I had to pick one thing from this book that you should probably know as a term that other people use, it's probably that. Mm -hmm. Um, My quick definition of it would be uh, inheritance of like brutality on page Mm -hmm. 104. He lays out in very graphic detail, the history of the African slave in America and talking about their bodies were pulverized into stock and marked with insurance. Um, the bodies were aspirational. They were lucrative as Indian land, a veranda, a beautiful wife or a summer home in the mountains. And it's just, he just turns them into the transaction that they were in this kind of, you know, poetic, but really harsh um, and brutal way. He also pulls a quote from a a slave owning woman who says there was some disobedience today, wrote a Southern mistress, much idleness, sullenness, slovenliness had to use the rod or use the rod. And so it's a blending of, there's a certain uh, historicity here. There's a certain academic angle with, you know, he does his research and anyway, but to me, it all adds up to just be the body is defined as a thing to be brutalized and you have to sort of own that brutality if you're just to mm-hmm. have any place in this world as a, a black American. I'm not going to, that's my interpretation. I, I'm not saying he says that, but to me, the sum of all of that, those descriptions and all that violence and the way he, to his son, addresses him about his own dealing with his own body and living with it and somehow reconciling with it. That mm-hmm. to me, it's sort of like in, the inheritance of violence and then just reconciling with it and having to move forward in that, in that, I was going to say like prison in a way, it kind of is, it is an imprisonment of sorts. Yeah. I think the, uh, the use of the body throughout is 
it kind of elevates this from just a personal experience and like emotional thing to a more academic discussion. Yeah, I think that yeah. it, it elevates it to that, to that level uh, because specifically he does relate it to the body. And, and there are other, like there's feminist authors who also discuss like specifically the body and, and how the female body throughout history has been, um, taken advantage of and, and performed, there's been violence against the female body as well. And I just, and that immediately when I was reading this, that's what stood out to me. And I was able to relate yeah. it to that as well. Yeah. I think um, that these are perfect transitions to get into some other quotes. Cause I just pulled at least one that I was going to read at any rate. Um, mm -hmm. Did you have any quotes that you want to begin with? This is like the, we usually in a book uh, club call this the syntax celebration, which despite the topic matter, we can still celebrate. There's a lot of writing to celebrate in this volume. Um, so let's pull some quotes and talk through them. Did you have any quotes you want to start off with today? Anything that jumped out to you? So since we were just talking about the destruction of the body, um, I did draw one quote that talks specifically mm -hmm. about race and racism and and how racism is so destructive. So this is from page seven, and it says, Americans believe in the reality of a, quote, race. As a defined, indubitable feature of the natural world, racism, the need to ascribe bone-deep features to people and then humiliate, reduce, and destroy them, inevitably follows from this inalterable condition. But race is the child of racism, not the father. And the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy and physiognomy so much as one of hierarchy. Yeah. So I thought that was really great because he, he continuously makes a point of saying that um, white people are not actually white. It's just that they are constructing themselves as white and they are the ones right. who have named the black community as black in order to maintain a, a certain level of power. Uh, so when he was giving a definition of race and racism, it really struck me because I, that's like the core of his, one of the, the core ideas of, of this whole reading and why why he is so afraid uh, for his son in a lot of ways is, is that when you ha have to face a group of people who uh, do not want to change a lot of people who don't want to change because they're the people in power, it's, it's a lot harder to, to make a change in society yeah. uh, for the people who are not in power. Right. And the, the idea of it being as simplistic in a way as just like another hierarchy, like if there's anything from a through, if there's an, an easy through line to thread through history, it's like, hey, there's always been hierarchies. You can take your pick. Do you want the mm -hmm. triangular one that was in Egypt that everyone learns about in grade school? Do you want the French ones? Do you want an, arist an aristocratic version? Like take your pick. Um, do you want the current kind of capitalist version that is kind of perverting governments in certain ways? I mean, you just like, yeah, just take your pick. And so right. when you boil it down to something so simplistic, it, I'm not that description. I really like the, the, not the child of racism, not the father. I think there's a cause and effect logic to that, that I think a lot of people need to understand. And mm -hmm. that, and it kind of relating that metaphor back to the hierarchical nature of it, um, is really quite well said. It's a, it's a very succinct, but yeah. easy way to kind of flip one's thinking where I think a lot of people might believe the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, that's a great quote. I'm going to pick one. Let's see. 
Well, I think we were in broad agreement that the the writing, the syntax, the style of it was just excellent. I think Coates is well regarded as an excellent writer and author. I always felt that when he was with The Atlantic too. Um, so I, I wanted to pick a quote that I felt kind of more mixed up about. It's not from the same uh, consecutive sentences. It's not from the same paragraph, but it's from the same page. And I was wondering if you felt this way too. This is from page 20. On one part, he says, I remember being amazed the death could so easily rise up from the nothing of a boyish afternoon, billow up like fog. And then later, he says, somewhere out there beyond the firmament, past the asteroid belt, there were other worlds where children did not regularly fear for their bodies. Uh, And it's a tale of two quotes here, to be Mm -hmm. a little bit cliche about it. The first one, I think, is extraordinary. I love the adjective boyish. Then with the the creeping fog right after that is like feels so childlike and fairy tale like and then also eerie and creepy. Mm-hmm. And then just to follow it up with like a metaphor about like a faraway planet. I don't know. It just like that second one just doesn't do a lot for me. I guess it feels a little more cliched in a way, even though even to like evoke the firmament and past that there's like there's writing in there that I think is really strong. But I don't know. I looked at those two quotes and thinking like I was so hit by the first one. But then the second one just I don't know. I, and he does evoke that kind of um like universe language, the kind of like space faring language a lot. I don't know if you noticed that, but that's something he does revisit pretty often. Yeah. Um, and I just, <laughs> I didn't find it to have, I don't know. I just didn't find it to have the depth or interest for me as the rest of it. Not that like, it's not a scorecard system. People, you don't have to like, you don't have to get out the metaphor card at the end of the book and be like, well, there were 10 good ones and five boring ones. So whatever. <laughs> so overall, I don't think it like detracted or anything, but I, I just wanted to pull something to show, I think there's some easy to understand, like almost to the point of cliche type of examples in there. But again, I'm not sure how you reacted or felt. Yeah, I, I think that you make a great point. That first part of the quote with the billowing up like a fog, the the idea of being at home and safe versus this creeping in like from the outside into and invading your space, your personal space. I really love that. And then, yeah, the asteroid belt thing, I definitely noticed um, throughout that he was making that, you know, universal galaxy um, Mm -hmm. uh, metaphor. And yeah, it didn't really do too much for me because he's such an amazing writer. And I think that he could have been really creative in playing with, if he really wanted to do that, then he should have played up the the homescape a bit more and the, yeah, the smallness yeah. of his initial world. I think he should have really, really played that up if he wanted to. Yeah. Um, so it kind of fell flat for me there too. I know that it, it's, you know, it's a common metaphor that people could really understand. And, you know, but he otherwise he's such an amazing writer. So I was just kind of a little disappointed with his I use think, of that metaphor. And the more I read the fog one or the more I think about it, how it's this it's a creeping force. It's the, yeah. the way it kind of moves silently. And it's not it's not how you think of violence like or death. You think of death as something kind of explosive or at least the stereotypical like street type of violence that he describes or is exposed to. You don't think of it like a hazy kind of like dull, almost inevitable kind of, I don't know. There's just so many evocative things about that, that I, that I think are just so amazing. And then, yeah, just to come up with like, Oh, it's they, the, the white families grow up in another world. Like there's two war. I don't know. It just seems maybe simplistic by comparison or just doesn't like, it doesn't get my mind churning with, it doesn't feel, I think you said it maybe not as creative. Um, And I think there's, you know, that wasn't meant to be an example of a, of a two sides ism type of thing. I think overall the writings is, is exceptional, but he came back to the, the universe language, like enough to, for me to think like th- he wants this to work or like he really 
kind of believes in this metaphor or something that, yeah. yeah, and it just never fully connected for me. Not nearly as much as kind of just the way he's, he's just interweaving in paragraph after paragraph, those more subtle metaphorical, or in that case, like simile type examples of just um, really poignant description. I think when he goes for that other like extended metaphor, yeah, it just didn't mm-hmm. work as well. So yeah, I thought that was right. worth bringing up. Any yeah. other quotes? I want to, I, I have at least one more, but did you have another? Uh, you can go ahead with yours while I choose my next one. <laughs> okay. I think, um, this is the one I mentioned earlier about the, the, when he described college in a way that felt so universal to me, um, mm-hmm. was from page 48. He said, the pursuit of knowledge was freedom to me, the right to declare your own curiosities and follow them through all manner of books. I was made for the library, not the classroom. The classroom was a jail of other people's interests. The library was open, unending, and free. Slowly, I was discovering myself. And again, I would say there's a bit of a two-sides-ism that I, I would think about in this quote. It's a succinct and really, like I think, illuminating description of his own personal just development, who he is as a person, what he values. And then again, calling the classroom a jail is just like so tired, I think. I, my eighth grader said that to me like all the time. School's a jail. <laughs> we're in jail. And it, I, there are certain, and I guess that, again, this is just my sensitivity as an educator. Mm-hmm. There are just certain kind of comparisons to me that just at this point hit that cliche laziness thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just like comparing school or classroom to jail, I just don't. I don't know. I, I There are so many literal ways where it's like, well, you're on a schedule. You have to be told where to go, that you have to be told when to eat. Like, yeah, we could. there's a litany of things we could say there, but I, I don't know. It just doesn't work for me overall. Like, it's, you get to leave at the end of the day. I don't know. Like, it, <laughs> it, there's people there who are like, rooting for you and like desperately trying to get you to succeed. And I I somehow doubt jail is like that very often. Um, I do think though, the one thing that within that quote though, within that comparison, which again, I I will just never connect with that. I've heard it too often to think that that's a good piece of writing or whatever. Right. Um, But he does that in that of other people's interest modifier, Mm -hmm. which is the kind of subtlety that brings me back in a little bit too. thinking like, When my kids would say it when I was a teacher, they would use that as a criticism against the school or the classes or whatever. It was more of just like they were bored and none of it interested them or not enough. And it was just kind of like rote, you know, it was the routine aspect, I believe. Also, the fact that there were punishments implemented, like I think that was another thing that they didn't want to get punished or want to get silent lunch or detention or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think it was those two things was the routine and the routinization plus punishment stuff. In this case, he's just, it's an intellectual issue for him. It's like, he doesn't want to be told to do trigonometry when he could be doing it, when he could be learning about history, when he could be studying up on the slavery that was not taught to him in school, when he could be learning about black intellectual history that is just like, again, not in any public school curricula in the U.S. or certainly not many of them. Yeah. So... In that sense, I think it actually works fine. But again, it, I just thought I'd bring that quote up to show it, it hit me on a personal level of like the, the beauty of a library, the beauty of having a college experience where you feel so much more free mm-hmm. to get answers that you want. Or maybe, and he frames this well too throughout, it, it's not even that he got answers, it's that he got better questions and he got right. more interesting questions that he could then you know, push on with and, and kind of like use as a, a guiding principle or light. But then, you know, the reference to jail, just like in the middle of that passage, I just remember mentally being like, ah, fuck, like I, that again, <laughs> I, to, I, you know, really, really brought me back uh, in, a, in a depressing way. Um, yeah. But again, I think I, I like the framing around it overall. Yeah, I think that uh, the addition of other people's interests, that's, that's yeah. great. And what he really could have played on, I know he was playing on like, 
in the next sentence where he says unending free, free versus the jail. But he could have yeah. said something like a the the slideshow of other people's interests or the mm-hmm. whatever, right? So there's several different more pertinent things, more realistic descriptions, more realistic, I guess, metaphors. Um yeah, yeah. That he could have used. So I agree. Like the use of the jail, and I've definitely heard that before as well for my students. And <laughs> and I agree. I, I was just kind of like, eh, okay. Well. It feels, and it's funny too, because <laughs> when I would talk to my students about it, it was like the connotation is too extreme for this. Like you're really overselling this. Now, granted, that's it is in the teenager's nature to oversell, and that it's fine. <laughs> whatever. That's that is their lived emotional experience, and it's valid and and good and whatever. And so, but th- that was always my point. Then was just like, can we not be as hyperbolic as this? I right. think is it not though even more complex that he drops that into a work about the Black American experience who, who are like radically criminalized and jailed at rates that are astronomical compared to any other group like like that just evoking Mm -hmm. that becomes very intense and visceral in this work where the the, and granted he doesn't really talk about prison reform much or not at all frankly in this it's not really a thing that he's dealing with right it just feels quite loaded to compare something to being imprisoned or in jail yeah. In this and then, and then to not expand on it. Right. But mm-hmm. and it could just be my hypersensitivity to it as we've already well outlined as an educator and having heard it, yada, yada. So maybe, you know, 99 readers have 100 probably just breeze right over that sentence and go like, oh, yeah, school does suck. Let's keep reading this. Um, <laughs> or, yeah. You know, whatever school is boring. I don't, I don't want to listen to my calc teacher either or whatever. But yeah. anyway, that one really jumped out to me. I couldn't couldn't let it go. I'm too bitter. And uh, my. <laughs> Time as an educator scarred me too deeply to let that one slide, I think. <laughs> yep. <laughs> How about uh, other quotes from you? Did you have any others you felt like needed to be read? Um, I've got two that I would like to go over, but I'm just going to go with uh, the one for right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this is, of course, a letter to his son. And so he says on page 71, The birth of a better world is not ultimately up to you, though I know each day there are grown men and women who tell you otherwise. The world needs saving precisely because of the actions of these same men and women. I'm not a cynic. I love you and I love the world and I love it more with every new inch I discover. But you are a black boy and you must be responsible for your body in a way that other boys cannot know. Yeah. And so I read this and I was like, Wow, it's just that's he he makes the claim that he is not a cynic, and at the same time, I'm like that's just you know it's kind of, and of course I'm I'm a white Asian female, so it's it's a different. Even though I'm also a part of a minority, the the minority that I come from um, is considered the the model. They actually have the term model minority, where we have our own right. issues like higher suicide yeah. rate and stuff like that, and we have our own stuff going on but it's certainly not highlighted the same way um as for the the black community in america um mm-hmm. so i just had i was just like well it, it's it's disheartening it it hurts me to to even think that i would have to tell my daughter like um i know that people tell you that you know you're the you're the one that can make a real change can make a real difference but in reality you can't uh because of your your race like that, that hurts me to even think that I would ever have to say something like that to a child, to my child. Right. Um, right. And then um, I was reading 
yeah. So anyway, I won't bring that up, but yeah, it's, it's just something that I, I was like kind of hurt by, I guess. Yeah, no. And it's a, I think if there were one philosophy to take away from this, if I had to boil it down maybe to an oversimplistic way or in an oversimplistic way, it would be that you have to, we have to live with the pain and it, there will be no reconciliation and no progress without the pain. I think that he, in every way in the framing this to his son and making it very personal in that way and intimate, uh, there's just, I think it it is the acknowledgement and the embracing of that pain, the history of it, the urgent and immediacy of it as well. It it stands out as like maybe the one philosophy to take away. And again, that I think returns to his, again, what to me was like a pretty purposeful atheism, though, again, he never says that. So I I think you were right at the beginning to question like where where his beliefs are in that regard. Mm -hmm. But uh, to me, it just read so intentionally that way to undercut kind of the way people appease themselves and the way specifically like black Christians can use that as a way to just survive in an otherwise hellish life. And I think he just wants to reject that very aggressively and, you know, say that there's no glory in death. There's no glory in waiting and there's no glory in, in appeasing anyone or bowing down or waiting or none of that is honorable or glorious. Like I, I think would be, not to put words in his mouth, but I think the strength of the prose kind of indicates that to be true. Right. Yeah. I think the one quote I have about dreamers, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to read the whole thing, mm-hmm. but it kind of gets to the thing we just talked on with about acknowledging race and pain and history. He's talking about the dream and he mentions a couple of like white um, pop culture figures of adoration, like Skywalker and Aragorn and all these, you know, fantastical heroes. Yeah. On page 143, he says to awaken them, which is the dreamers. That's basically white America, roughly speaking Yeah. to awaken them is to reveal that they are an empire of humans. And like all empires of humans are built on the destruction of the body. It is to stain their nobility, to make them vulnerable, fallible, breakable humans. I think it's an exceptional quote and another, summary of the the struggle and the difficulty of this the whole movement this whole endeavor is you're trying to talk down in the most base economic like tangible materialistic sense you're trying to talk down a very successful large group of people into acknowledging their failure and their lack of success and their and their like fallibility and and even if you want to get moralistic about it, their evil doing and kind of their evil mm. ignorance in a way or their painful ignorance. And that is just when you when you're up against kind of a whiteness or a dream or a, a haziness that has constructed itself and forged itself and fortified itself very aggressively through yeah, not only like the pop culture things he mentions, which I think are true, but also just construction of school systems in certain ways and construction of neighborhoods in certain ways and segregation of cultures in different ways. Like, man, it's their obstacles abound. And I think his realism in that way, if in pessimism or cynicism, I think it, it spots too. I think you were right to right. say those things earlier as well. I think coming away from this, you do feel that um, a bit, but I think it framing it this way puts it out in a realistic and, you know, frames the challenge in a way that is tangible and understandable and kind of brutal, but those are things that need to be acknowledged, I suppose. And I think he puts it and he frames it really well. Mm-hmm. He does, uh, I think, a really great job in pinpointing for himself and and for his son. He does a great job with pinpointing the the actual problems um, that the black community does have to face and the problems that are not being fixed. 
Um, but he, at the same time, does not provide very much as far as like solutions aside from telling his son to like figure out his own Mecca and to always, uh, you know, question and to, to research and to study, uh, what he wants to. Right. But other than that, he doesn't really offer a discussion of what can be done, which maybe ties into like when he says that it's not his place, to figure out how to make the world a better place for himself and for his progeny. But like, yeah, uh, I, I would have liked to have seen something where he would say like, this is what needs to change. And this is how I think we can change it. Well, isn't this though, and this is maybe a very humanities way of framing this, but gosh, I mean, I, well, I don't want the conversation to go too off the rails, but mm-hmm. doesn't he basically, or don't you see in him the same frustrating not ambivalence, but the same frustrating conclusions that many academics have, which is basically a big shoulder shrug. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like in that, and a lot of academia ends up being that way, where once you know too much and once you've studied too many different points of view, philosophies, angles, whatever, theories of knowledge, all that, like, you can just become not lost in it or purposeless or like directionless, but you're because you know so much, you're also smart enough to know that giving any definitive answer is just bullshit anyway. Yeah. And so it's like, leave that to the talking heads and the people it's, it's that classic thing of like the Socrates, you know, I'll all, all I know is that I know nothing or however you want to translate that quote. Mm-hmm. But I think it is, he does come across as a very academic person in that way where it's, this is the type of person in intellectual, very so well-written and is so articulate. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of person you would want to like go to on your knees and be like, can you just solve this please? Or like, what's, what do <laughs> <Yeah>. we do? <laughs> and again, he is, he is, clearly knows enough to say i don't know and if you say you know then you're an idiot and a liar and right. like and you're not acknowledging the brutality and the urgency of this and like the history of it and yeah and how it and all these different dynamics and yeah i think it's not the greatest note to end on though we do have another part we're going to do before we end this but this is not a work you should approach thinking uh, here's how we solve it um i will mention a couple of those works by the way there are mm-hmm. definitively tons of thinkers and and politicians sociologists anthropologists like there are definitely people out there that are like here's the bullet points man like we can do these things we have to start doing these things i just don't know if coates is that person i think his he is in an intellectual tradition that is maybe not so much focused on uh, bullet point policy solution and more on broader philosophy and effects of uh, history of violence, really. And so, yeah, I, it's tough. It, I would recommend this to just about anyone, I think. But um, I, I think of like a core audience being my mom, like a, a white liberal woman who mm-hmm. will probably listen to this. Hey, mom, love you. Um, send send them love from from Charlotte. <laughs> um, but as someone who's very open-minded and taught me, you know, what you would say, quote unquote, the right morals and the right lessons and, and was very, let me pick my own path and was very loving and nurturing and all, all the th- good things. But I also think like if I gave her something like this, I think she would react pretty negatively to it though. I'll mm-hmm. send you my copy, mom, give it a shot. Um, but I, I think it's because <laughs> in her point of view, and I think a lot of like successful or, or relatively comfortable white people always come at the front at that angle where it's like, well, tell us what to do then. Like we're, we're action oriented. We can solve stuff. Let's solve this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a, a hundreds of years of legacy here of where it's okay to sit in the, in the gloom of it for a while. And it, and it, if you're not doing that then you're also kind of failing in a way and it's, you know, there's a certain, 
historicity to back that up, I think, too. And he's pretty well researched. But no, I, yeah. So I just don't think if you're coming to this for policy solutions, you're way off. Yeah. This is way off in terms of what you're going to be reading and and the kind of work that this is. It's much more intimate and personal. And he just doesn't care about solving this, I don't think, in the end. Yeah. It is. It, it, I yeah. definitely have already recommended this uh, book to a couple of people, actually, just because even if it, even if Coates doesn't offer up any uh, solutions, I think that his description of the problems, I think that those descriptions are just really well done and and yeah. very insightful. Yeah. So um, definitely, at least if if he's not willing or able to give solutions, at least, you know, by other people reading what the actual problems are, perhaps they can, you know, reach out to politicians, maybe they are a politician, um, and they can right. kind of come up with some things that they could, maybe if that, that they might think would help with. In, and in some ways, too, this is almost the more urgent reading, uh, only because there are a couple of things going around policy proposals, police de- defunding ideas and re- re- reformation. There, it's clear that some policy people have been like, okay, we can do these, pass these things. Here's the local stuff you can try and do. It's almost more urgent for this to be read. This is like the, it's like how in school, especially in like education programs, all the people are in the room. They're like, just give us the strategies. We don't care about yeah. the why. Like, I don't want to hear your philosophy of education before you give me the strategies. Like, just give me the strategies. And I, I was that person in training plenty of times. Mm-hmm. But this is 100% the why of it all. Like, exactly. this, is the, this is an explore, exploration of something more core that I don't think people have been exposed to in this intimate and, and kind of well-written and succinct a way. So it's almost more urgent because like, man, you can go to Twitter right now or whatever, Google and yada, yada, like... The, those bullet point policy things are out there. This is more intimate reading and I think therefore more urgent and can, I think, like you said, it can make these issues and, and sort of help white Americans um, connect to these and try and maybe understand this point of view in, in a much more personal and emotional way. So it's maybe even more urgent. Yeah, I think that it, it's a, a great starting point for there to be an actual conversation and maybe like working together uh, to understand yeah. So, yeah, I think that this is really important. And he even discusses um, the idea of, like, you, you mentioned, like, police defunding and police reform. He actually, is, you know, says uh, police refor- reform has come into vogue. And this is back in 2005. And, and he yeah. says that yeah. the truth is that the police reflect America in all of its will and fear. And whatever we might make of this country's criminal justice policy, it cannot be said that it was imposed by a repressive minority. So to challenge the police right. is to challenge the American people. And so the problem with the police is not that they are fascist pigs, but that our country is ruled by majoritarian pigs. Right. So he's he's pinpointing specifically, and I pulled that quote specifically because of what's going on now, but yeah. he's saying that, yeah, you can offer up these solutions, but the real issue here is not you know, necessarily that thing, that the root of the issue is is the way that people see themselves and see the black community. Yeah, completely. And that the just you reading through that quote, my brain is now like doing a backwards sprint to be like, dude, are we really going to have to fucking talk about John Locke right now again? Or like, <laughs> it's just like, there's so many, there's, so, there's such a lineage of thought. Like, man, I don't want to have to talk about who's the God Hobbes. Like, do we really have to talk about Hobbes right now? Like, can I just not do that again? <laughs> but at some point you just have to, you have to really, 
and I don't know, again, this is just my like humanities ed preferences peeking through and that's whatever, but it's just, Mm -hmm. there's an intellectual type of history and a a philosophy history here that some people, I guess, just never get exposure to and having conversations like that without everyone having that base knowledge to be like, can we just all know what that means can become so frustrating because it's like now I'm just want to take 10 minutes and riff and be like, can we just go back and explain where these beliefs came from and like right. anyway uh, yeah we're not going to do that here that is not the purpose of this pod and i think we we did it i think we did quite right by the pros of this and and hopefully celebrated it plenty yeah um we're going to change our final segment today a little bit not a huge tweak this is normally when we do critical assistance when we pull in criticism authors that can speak on this better than we can that respond to the text that have interesting ad- addenda to what we talked about but that's easy to find. Coates, like I said, is really well regarded, extremely famous writer at this point. He just wrote a novel that won some awards and and he yeah, he's like a thought leader in this space. He's one of the most famous black American writers at the moment. So you, you just Google. If you're not willing to Google, then you're not fucking trying at all and so <laughs> yeah. you shouldn't be listening to this anyway. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, you can do that. We trust that you can do that. Instead, what we're going to offer is just quick recommendations. These also I'm just going to call out you people if you listen to this whole thing and haven't Googled ideas of like, what can I read to expand my knowledge? You're just not fucking trying. Like, there's so many lists going around right now from every angle, every website, every publications being like, here's the 10 books to get you started. Here, Read this if you're like, I don't know where to begin and I'm not yeah. sure how to think or how to process this. Again, you're just not trying if you can't Google that, honestly. So just do it. Here are our personal recommendations. Uh, why don't we go like back and forth maybe? I'll recommend one, you recommend one. I we'll try and you, keep it pretty brisk. did a lot more than I did, I think. <laughs> no, 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 I only put four. I, I purposely do. <laughs> You start then. (laughs) I purposely thought like, let's just keep, I'm just trying to keep this succinct for the people who are listening and have endured this whole pod that we love that you're here with us. Um, Okay. First one for me, the short and tragic life of Robert Peace. Very affecting work. It's contemporary. It's about a student. This is a great one to give family members who say, why can't black people in America be more appreciative? Why can't they work harder? Why can't they, why aren't they like Barack Obama's president, man, we solved it. Like this is the thing to give them. It's a narrative nonfiction. So it's very engaging. It's incredibly heartbreaking tale as the goddamn title implies. Um, And it's about a a young, brilliant young man who like goes to Yale and is going to live the American dream. And then doesn't. And so it's extremely insightful about social forces in America. Again, it's very current. This person lived and then died, as the title tells you, in like the 2000s. So it's very recent. This is the this is what you give a coworker, friend, a family member, whatever. If that's their point of view, that's what you should give them. The short and tragic life of Robert Peace. What do you got, Amanda? Any recommendations? Of course. Um, So all the books that I had recommended were um, they're all classics. The considered okay. classics, which, you know, is, yeah. is my spiel. So, of course, um, and I and all of mine also deal with um, uh, feminist topics within the black community specifically. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, and, and, and maybe I was thinking more about it because of your question about, like, what were some of the topics that he didn't really build on? So if you're yeah. interested in, in black feminism and black feminist literature, the books that I yeah. have um, would be really interesting for you. Um, okay. So the first one that I would recommend is Alice Walker's The Color Purple. Um, that book is one of my favorite books of all time. I Okay. Uh, it's just so good. Um, they also made a movie out of it. So if you're not really Mm. wanting to take the time to read the book, which you 100% should. um, But if you're just like, meh, um, it does star Whoopi Goldberg. 
um, oh, in it. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. yeah, yeah, so it's good. Um, but it's about, um, uh, it's a female named uh, Celie who um, grows up in it. It's, she's raped, she's beaten, she's um, all these terrible things. She's also, this is also um, uh, during a time when um, it was not okay to be anything but straight. Uh, so mm-hmm. there is some okay. some uh, play with like gender and okay. uh, gender some identity and stuff topics. like that. Oh yeah, it's like got mm-hmm. everything in it. So it's okay. a great even if you don't necessarily like care about the you know certain like feminist perspectives or anything, but you're into queer theory and queer literature, this is also a great read. Okay, cool. I will then throw out another classic, The Souls of Black Folk. This is what I would say you recommend to someone who. Uh, let's say that they, they are passionate about the current movement and they are even knowledgeable. Like a lot of those people, though, I mean, I'm thinking of like TikTok kids, man, like they have not read classics. Like and I'm great. I'm gl- grateful that they're on board. And like, honestly, there a lot of the younger people are the ones out there like doing doing the literal work in the literal street. Um, but if you wanted to recommend something to that demographic of passionate, but like not knowing a deeper lineage or history or something. I mean, the souls of black folk is like the capital C classic. It has like genre defining language in it. The idea of a veil, there are symbols in it that have been like co-opted and used since it was written. It is like an absolute landmark in terms of black history or specifically African-American history. Yeah, I think that is, and it's also pretty, again, a pretty slim one as far as I can remember. It's a dense read, more of a sociological type of read. So it's not a narrative type of thing. But that one to me would be an essential and pretty slim classic too. Yeah. The, the next one that I recommended um, was Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Um, but I read it in written- high school, Amanda, and it sucked. <laughs> Convince me. <laughs> so this is written during the, the Harlem Renaissance. Persuade me. But um, I didn't think it sucked at all. I really actually no, I, loved I it. Was being, that was my, um, that was my <laughs> ungrateful high school. Ton- that was my angsty teen tone of voice. I need to get better at that. <laughs> gotta act harder (laughs) yeah it's it's a great read because um the main character is uh, a woman who at first feels empowered and is told by her grandmother that her sexuality is like a sin essentially right and then she comes to embrace herself and and to embrace her her life and embrace being a woman an attractive woman and she she becomes empowered throughout the the novel okay. there are certain men who try to keep her down and she just you know she she struggles a bit but in the end you know i, I don't want to ruin it but she's it's 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 very much about the empowerment of a particular female and, and it's a great read fantastic okay yeah and we could use after this episode there again was not a lot of uplift um which you know i don't necessarily even need in in the work but yeah okay that's that's I, you sold me on that one <laughs> my next recommendation my third one is a novel called Invisible Man, which absolutely changed my life in a couple of essential ways. And I wish I were exaggerating because when people say that, it's I, if you rolled your eyes, that's fine. I don't mind. Um, but it's a kind of historic um, historical epic. Uh, it's about kind of like Jim Crow South era person trying to leave the South, go to New York and find his way. Um, a, a young black man who do, who does that journey. It is truly epic in every way. It's got elements of like the Odyssey in it, so it's kind of you know it's fiction in the grand sense, in the grand Western sense. To me, you give this to someone 
who was me, which was a Marxist who was like, I don't get why race is such an issue. There are economic issues that are way more important. This is a great challenge to that. It's an extremely nuanced story that deals with those issues in great detail and a really good kind of narrative dynamic way. So I think if you have a hard time reconciling those issues or you're just thinking a lot about them, and you're wondering why race is the core issue when there are other issues, if that is a questioning your mind, and you also want to read fiction instead of just like reading a bunch of other stuff you could read, Invisible Man, I think, is an incredibly striking narrative. It's really one of the defining, I think, true epics of like all of American literature. So there's there's that recommendation. Did you have another one, Amanda? I do. And I also want to add on to Invisible Man and say that it is very well written and yeah and very yeah. thought provoking like it's it's a great read i 100 percent back that yeah that that hit me at a really perfect time in college when i had to read that really extraordinary because yeah. i yeah there were i was really deep into into my political philosophy at that point and there the basically the final third of the story is him getting co-opted into like a marxist communist movement and then right. it kind of rolls from there and it, it was just an essential thing for me to encounter uh, yeah. at that point in my life um, so anyway, sorry. Yeah. What, what's your recommendation? Oh, yeah. Um, so my final recommendation is Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. Um, okay. and yeah. just like to say that Toni Morrison is, uh, I mean, she's a very well-known writer and mm-hmm. she is an amazing writer. She, her metaphors, her language, it's like, she's writing more almost like poetry, uh, through her novels. Yeah. And it's yeah. just, it's a beautiful, she writes so beautifully and, I recommend that just on that merit alone. Um, but the bluest eye also is really great for talking about uh, the concepts of beauty. So if you're interested in right, right, and how that's perceived, I think that this would be a pretty good read. Yeah, no, that's phenomenal. Yeah, and I was I was gonna go harsh and say if you haven't read Toni Morrison, you're also not fucking trying at all. Like, how is that a thing? <laughs> uh, but no, I, I'm gonna retract that for sure because there's just I always feel this way with literature. There's just so many authors always, and yeah. no one should be shamed for something they haven't read. Like the shame would come in if, if you didn't even try or you know purposefully yeah. neglected whatever. But Toni Morrison's incredible. You should read whatever you can find that Toni Morrison wrote. Yeah. Um, the final recommendation I'll give is probably the most pragmatic one, which I think if you've listened to this this much of this episode and you just wanted a quick pragmatic recommendation, then I, I'm sorry for the deep dive we did that was an hour long. <laughs> but that's, you know, again, love to have you. Uh, but no, this is the most like readable, essential. This is textbook like this is when I was in Teach for America, a thing that they pulled from literally all the time. And that they, I think they gave copies to everybody. And it is the new Jim Crow. This is like you could literally just take this as an insert and just drop it into a U.S. high school textbook for U.S. history and just be like, there you go. You should also include that. Um, It's statistics driven. It's heavy on history and academia. It's sociological and anthropological. It's but also, again, very readable from what I can remember. It really lays out concepts. It does a lot with prison reform. There's a if you're like want to know about prison reform, if you want to know about jails and how bond works and what the hell cash bail is and what why that's not good. um, The new Jim Crow will lay that out. It also does stuff with. I'm pretty sure it had updated stuff about like marijuana laws and drug laws and how that disproportionately affects uh, black communities versus others. Um, and I know I'm doing the tone thing and where I'm rushing not to talk it down just because we're <laughs> at our time limit anyway. Um, no, it's an inc- incredibly essential read to me that of the four that I mentioned, 
that's maybe the only essential one because again, it's it's practical in that policy way of like this is the shit we can do. We can do things now, right now. We can there's things we can tangibly do. The other three are just like incredible reads in their own right, and can they can change hearts and minds in different ways. But if you just want the policy shit. You have to read the new Jim Crow. You must do it. It's or and then that and like um, how to be an anti-racist is another one that's been going around. That's another kind of like you kind mm-hmm. of just have to read that one if you want to speak or like move through the world with this movement in mind. That's another one where it's just like you kind of just need the language of that book as well. So that that's my final book recommendation. Nice. Anything else? And I purposely limited myself there to about four or five because I there's just so many flying around on the internet if you're feeling overwhelmed then hopefully that limits it a little bit for you where you're like okay at least I have a couple ideas were there any others that jumped out uh nope I'm good fantastic not sure how to close this one because it is a pretty momentous uh moment we're in pretty meaningful and I don't know again if we can contribute anything in the kind of practical current events way Mm -hmm. Um, I think in the most cliched way I guess I would just offer up don't ignorance cannot be a blanket at this point Um, there's just no excuse for not learning more you know whether you come down on an issue like abolishing the police is a thing that's making waves right now and if you come down on like I don't want to abolish the police what if I get robbed in my car like what the hell then sure, but at least educate yourself on what that would entail or what that means. Educate yourself on intellectual history. Go read fucking Tom Hobbs or whatever the hell if you feel like you have to do that. You know, go go read the <laughs> what you read the Leviathan or you know. I there, there's just things you can do, and I think no matter where you want to jump in right now uh, in the movement or the conversations or anything, the debates or ho- however you want to frame it. I just think the ignorance is the most inexcusable thing at the moment. I think we can obviously do a hell of a lot more than say, I'm not ignorant. And that gets into the anti-racist stuff. Like being a a sideline, well-read person on the sidelines doesn't do us anything. So I'm not, but I'm not here to critique you. I'm just saying the least you can do is study, read. um, And obviously our podcast is focused on those things and thinking, sharing your thoughts. I think these are all things that you can do and at least do that with your family and friends. Start small. Don't put the burden of the world on your shoulders. There's no point in that right now either. We can put that burden on people we elect to accept the burden and shoulder it. So, yeah, I would say just read widely and stay engaged mentally, stay intellectually active. And the ignorance is the truly inexcusable thing in my mind at the at this moment. Again, whether you, you come down on certain policy issues in one way or the other, that really, frankly, at this point doesn't bother me tremendously. It's more... Just gather the information, I guess. Any thoughts, Amanda? I think Coates would 100% agree with you, right? Like that's the whole journey mm-hmm. with this reading is is about defeating ignorance and doing the research and figuring out what the hell. So yeah. for sure, I, I agree 100%. Like even if you don't agree, do your research and try yeah. to see what the perspective is. Try to understand what's going on. Yeah, completely. I think that's well said, and I'm so glad you brought it back to the coats too. It's, yeah, ultimately his love of of the human intellectual history, human um, kind of culture and thought, and human interaction is deep in the in the text we read, and he's appreciative of it and really loves it in a in a pure way. And so, yeah, I think us kind of co opting that aspect of his text is as wonderful a final notion as I have. Um, thanks so much, Amanda, for joining us or joining me, I suppose. There very well may be a part two to this episode. Um, My brother Ryan also read it and we wanted to tag him in sometime this week. So I'm going to put this up tomorrow. I'm going to call it part one 
And then I think Ryan and I are going to do a follow-up part two uh, later in the week. We might change the format or play with it a bit. We will be doing the same text between the world of me by ta Coates. So if you're interested more in that book or want a little bit more of an exploration, please join us then. Uh, and until then, we will see you between the classics. 